<laughs> that's not a joke. That's actually what happened. People would see these things flying and they'd be like, what the hell is that? And then when it landed, they would just beat this shit out of it. <laughs> Excellent. The, the cringe scientist versus the based peasant. <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events and the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is almost impossible to do, but we try anyway. So, George, who do we have this week? Well, this week on We Dead About Talk People, we're going to... <laughs> We're going to be talking about the other Antarctica. Other Antarctica? I don't know, man. I'm just reading the script. That's right. <laughs> Riddle me this. What is as mysterious as Antarctica? As inaccessible as the modern economic structures which rule and determine our lives, and as dark as the night sky? The North Pole. No. Think <laughs> deeper. Ooh, the Amazon rainforest, the wilds of Africa, the blasted heaths of mythopoeic Britannia? No, none of those, and not even the fabled Plateau of Lang. Oh no, are we talking about the moon? Nope, we're not going to the moon. Well, we never went to the moon, so there... <laughs> the moon doesn't exist. Anyway, right. I am, of course, referring to the Abyssal Plain. Uh... What? The Abyss? Oh, yes. Yes, Aaron. That grand, frightening realm where none dare to delve, save the bravest of souls. That horrifying zoo of tentacles and slot. Were you reading H.P. Lovecraft when you wrote this? You're ruining the joke. The keeper <laughs> of all secrets, where the Titanic sleeps, and the crash test dummy the CIA stuffed in a body bag labeled Osama bin Laden may or may not lie in repose. I am, of course, talking about... The sea. Oh, no! Oh, yes. Now, anyway, stop acting surprised. You wrote this shit. Well, I will have you know that I wrote it while completely strung out on dry ramen and beans eaten directly from the can. How is that different than any other episode? Well, this time I actually don't remember writing any of it at all. That's probably not good, but we're going to leave that aside for now. L look, I'll prove it to you. God, what what is this? It's the not script! Well, this is surprising. Not only did you not type it out in a Google Doc, you actually hand-wrote it? I was feeling old-fashioned, I guess. Wait a minute. I mean, I know your handwriting's bad, but I would stake my reputation, the tatters that it may be in, that this is not even English. What language is this even written in? That's English, dumbass. This is some sort of elder script, possibly, you know, from the, uh... The dark abyss of Relay where Great Cthulhu sleeps. Uh, give me that. Eh, come on, this looks perfectly readable to me. Just be honest with me, did you join some sort of esoteric cult just to write this episode? How do you define esoteric cult? You did, didn't you? I knew it! I knew, I knew this delay wasn't because of work. Well... Yeah, I just wanted to get really good info on this one. It's a good one, I promise. And 
Now, can we just uh, get on with it and go down to the uh, the old sea base and get this started? By sea base, does that mean you put a fish tank in the uh, the storage trailer that's half buried in the yard that we call the lab? No, no, like, look at this. We actually have, like, legit bathospheres and everything. I don't even know what a bathosphere is, but I'll go past that. All right, well, I guess I will climb aboard and hope we don't end up getting swallowed by Cthulhu and or any other eldritch horrors later on. Uh, I wouldn't worry about it. It'll be all right. What's this episode even about? I don't think we've gotten that far. Oh, it's it's about Captain Picard. All this just for some Star Trek nerd shit? No, no, the other Picard. I don't even know what we're talking about anymore. See, okay, look, I started writing an episode about a guy named Jacques Picard, I guess is how you pronounce it. I really don't know. haven't gotten that far yet. He was the legendary submariner who went to the deepest part of the ocean. And then I discovered that his dad was what's called an aeronaut who went to the highest part of the stratosphere. So I decided to write an episode about his dad first. So this episode isn't actually even about the ocean, even though that's what we've been it's, talking about. Yeah, it's like a reverse Bioshock. First we go to the sky and then we go to the ocean. Okay. <laughs> It'll work out, I promise. I'm not wrong about this. Okay, Grant, we'll just I'll grant you that for now, but wouldn't it make more sense to have a sky base for the sky episode and a sea base for the sea episode? Look, in 2021, the media's only trick to hide their crappy writing these days is what's called the old switcheroo. If you just make Harry Potter a girl, you're immune to criticism, no matter how bad your movie is. We gotta play ball, George! You know what? Whatever. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm done. I'm over it. I'm good. Let's, let's just keep going. All right. Now just jump into this bathosphere, even though you don't know what that is, and we'll go talk about the sky. See how original we are? See? Hire me, Disney! If you were to do a battle with some kind of sea monster, what kind of sea monster would you fight, and what would be your weapon of choice? Define sea monster. Um, any creature that comes from the depths of the abyssal plane, as oh, we that's, established. that's easy. Halibut. Those things are delicious. And I would choose a nice, strong <laughs> titanium fishing rod, and we would be eating good tonight. Oh, nice. That's a very, very... 
become the answer to ha- the question. Because halibut do stay right near the bottom, I'm pretty sure. So I think they're down in the abyss, as you call it. So I, I, uh, I'm convinced that this counts. And they're delicious. Well, Have you ever had a nice, fresh halibut steak? I can't say that I have. Well, you are missing out. Well, we've got some fishing to do sometime. Exactly. And what about you? What kind of lame sea monster would you fight, and what would be your weapon of choice? Insert Amy Schuber joke here. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Pick a director from Hollywood, and that's the sea monster. Um they're they're definitely I mean they tell us all the time what they actually are. Have you seen uh The Abyss? No. Okay, it's a James Cameron movie and it's proof that Hollywood directors are all sea aliens or something. And to fight James Cameron, uh my weapon of choice would be the camera because no one can Cameron a Cameron like a camera or something. I don't know. I'm out of puns. I, I'm punned out. And plus, we're entering the year of pain. Last year was nothing. So my sense of humor is just going to get worse as we go along until I finally get into that psychotic state where I no longer care if anyone's laughing because I'm just laughing in my sleep every single night as I dream about the inevitable destruction of this horrifying place. All right, that's enough of that. <laughs> Wow, did you, like, take a, a Vodka Valium espresso shot before we got on today? I drank a full glass, and I've got it right here, you can you can hear it, of ice water. Well, that, that, is, that is crisp. That sounds like stock sound. Mmm, yeah, no, wait till you hear me on a Red Bull. I drink those now. Anyway, computer, please bring up Auguste Picard. There we go. All right, George. Now, it looks like the computer brought up a much more complex image than usual, so you're going to have your work cut out for you. If you would please describe the image below. All right. Um, so there are three people in this image, of which the uh, whoever uh, wrote the description has only identified two for me, but I will forgive Aaron for this terrible oversight. So we've got two men in... Uh, Lab coats. Interestingly, they have different collars. One is wearing a, a standard turned-down collar. The other has one of those straight-up-the-neck collars that were popular in, like, the 18-somethings. Um, they both have ties because, of course, they're proper men of culture. Um, they are not the same height. One appears to be about five and a half inches shorter than the other, and looks a little bit like one of those grainy photographs of like, have you seen this scientist? He's a war criminal that you yep. that you that you see on things. He's got like the war criminal glasses, you know the ones I mean. Um, oh yeah. Probably importantly, they both appear to be wearing baskets on their head. Um, <laughs> I don't really have much to say about this other than that they each have a basket on their head, which appears to have some sort of some sort of padding in it. Um, it's literally just like. You put a pillow in a basket and then put it on on their head, you know, with pillow down and the basket pulled down onto their head. I don't really know what's going on here. Only one of them has facial hair, so I'm going to assume he's the protagonist. Um, And then there's a small child behind them sitting on a stool. Um, The child, slightly slovenly, uh, one one of its socks has sort of fallen down its calf while the other one's pulled up to its knee. Um, so yeah, not, not great attention to, uh, you know, the standards of decency in this 
workshop, I'm going to say, because there appears to be um, what is either a comically large bomb or some sort of uh, <laughs> submarine or some there's some sort of machine behind them that looks like an orb with some sort of porthole in it and a small trash can attached to the side. Like one of those metal trash cans you get outside convenience stores that seems to be stuck to the side of the orb. And there are a (laughs) bunch of ropes going up, so the orb is suspended from something we can't see at the moment. Um, And let's see, the guy on the right, with the the one with the mustache, also appears to have done a marginally better job polishing his shoes this morning than the war criminal (laughs) man on the left. Uh, the, the war criminal man seems to have some sort of belt closure on his lab coat, whereas the man with the mustache does not. So he gets some points back for that. So, um, yeah, overall, I would have to say that the man with the mustache is probably the protagonist, but the war criminal man is definitely a strong contender as well. And the child just needs to get itself together and pull up its socks. <laughs> well, I thank you for that description. There's a few things I would also like to add. Uh, that I noticed about this photograph. One, the protagonist character who has the mustache is standing over what appears to be a broomstick. Did you notice that? Uh, I thought it was a length of iron pipe, but yeah, some sort of long cylindrical object. It's like right between his feet. Perhaps it's a stick to beat the child. Probably, presumably. And the child is trying to climb into the orb and hide away from our protagonist with the basket on his head. Um, yeah, I can explain this photograph. Okay, so I can't actually explain the slovenly child, but I do, <laughs> I can't explain what's going on with the baskets and with our protagonist and war criminal. What about the trash um, the, can? I can't explain the trash can. Not off the top of my head. I believe that's a ballast system, but I'm not entirely sure. No, this is a picture of our, uh, August Picard. I'm just going to call him August Picard because I'm an American and I don't have to pronounce things properly. August Picard and his assistant, Paul Kipfer, in front of their, in well, their invention, which we'll talk about at some point in the story. And I can tell you right now that the baskets on their heads are probably mostly a joke. Um, something to do with crash helmet regulations in Germany. Um, and they were about to do something absolutely crazy. And the German, I don't know, science board or something like that said, if you're going to do something crazy, you have to have a crash helmet. So they improvised them out of baskets and pillows. So that's literally what they're wearing. Oh, nice. I was, yeah, that was good. I, I, I like the kind of flat angle that the war criminal man is wearing his. It makes it look a little bit more dignified because it almost looks like a sort of Ottoman turban. Yeah. He's like got this Sultan look. Yeah, definitely, um, definitely. Yeah, you can find this picture easily. It's it's uh, just Google Paul Kipp for August Picard, and you'll find it. But you just see what weird weirdness we're talking about. There's also some details in this photograph that we'll get to later, particularly regarding the machine behind them. And with no, I mean, with no context, this is a very strange image, isn't it? As I said, it looks like a comically large bomb. Yeah, it's a the whole the whole picture is just. A little bit weird. I don't know how else to describe it. There's something strange going on here, but we'll get into it. Um, was there any? Did you have any further questions about the image, or should we just carry carry on? No, I mean, I was thinking this probably. It's probably how I felt like I looked when I was like ten years old, trying to you know 
make weapons of mass destruction in my garage. Well, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> my mistake. That's This is just a picture of George at 10. <laughs> uh, okay. <clears throat> well, let's get into this story a little bit because it's a, it's a, it's a weird one. And I, I will admit I go all over the place with it, as is my want. But it's all related and there are a lot of lessons and, and interesting things you can pull from this story that don't have to do with the direct narrative. Um, this story is set during a time when science was sort of like really being hotly debated as a, I mean, as a discipline altogether, because, you know, for centuries now, it had been practiced in a certain way. And now it was starting to get involved with, with money and uh, public imagery and all the rest of that stuff. And um, we've, we're entering a phase here where things in the science world start to shift dramatically from how they began. Um, so without further ado, we'll begin. And as all bad stories begin, ours begins in Switzerland in oh, 1840. Oh God, oh God, it was a, it was a bait and switch. We're actually doing the William Tell episode. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. The William Tell episode is still weirder than this, and this is pretty friggin' weird. So, our story begins in Switzerland in 1840 with the birth of a fellow named Julius or Jules Picard. Jules would become a chemist in Lausanne. Lausanne? How do you pronounce it? Do you know? I think just Lausanne. 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 Uh, whatever. Lausanne. Uh, yeah. Lausanne. <laughs> He was a chemist in Lausanne. Lausanne, Lausanne, I don't know. Anyway, and he was a student of none other than a man named Robert Bunsen. Oh, oh, I know where this is going. Yeah, you do. Robert Bunsen was a man known for making the sciencey looking Bernie thing that nearly roasted my hand in meme chemistry class all those years ago. I, I Did recall, you take meme chemistry? <laughs> no, I didn't, but I recall that my roommate, who for the sake of all that is good and holy, we will not speak further of, made some sort of rap that involved a Bunsen burner, which you may remember. No, I don't remember the Bunsen it's, burner rap. It's not suitable for publication here. I'll tell you later. But okay. Bunsen burners were involved in a rap by the roommate who will not be spoken of. Right. We haven't heard from him in years. <laughs> Walker, come home. <laughs> God, you've anyway. said his name. <laughs> Jules Picard was a successful chemist, but not famously successful. And I tried for an entire five minutes, an entire five minutes, I say, to find more about him. But aside from his actual published works, which I can't read because they are not in English, I could find very little about Jules Picard. It seems as though he truly was a man of science, though, because his life story is that he wrote some papers, taught some courses, probably chilled out with his family, but he was never really in... He was never really in the newspapers, right? He was just a good chemist, which you don't want to get in the newspapers if you're a chemist for the most part, because usually you're accidentally blowing yourself up. <laughs> Happens to the best of us. Yes. This was an office, uh, this chemistry office was one that Jules Picard filled from 1869 to 1903, teaching as a professor of chemistry at the University of Basel, a 560-year-old university frequented by names such as, oh, I don't know, ever heard of Erasmus, Paracelsus, Bernoulli, Euler, Nietzsche, and Jung? Morons. <laughs> okay, Vincini. But I'm not sure if this tells you anything, really, other than that Jules was a huge confirmed nerd. <laughs> Is this episode actually going to be about Carl Jung? Because that would be dope. Uh, you get to do Jung. Oh, okay. 
have fun dissecting the subconscious and the archetypes. Um, Every morning over coffee. <laughs> I actually do want you to do Jung at some point. I'd love to get your take. <laughs> but anyway, um, Jules Picard had had some selected work, works, which again, I cannot read because they are not in the slave language known as English. Um, I don't know if you can pronounce these words, but do you see these titles before you on the not script? I, I, I'm, I'm getting a vision of them in the not scripts and they're, oh. they're appearing in my mind from somewhere. I don't know. De l'évaluation mécanique des surfaces planées. I think. Yes. As well as the classic bestseller. L'avenir d'agriculture d'après. I don't know what the M stands for. De la big. Comprendu de l'introduction à la septième edition de son ouvrage <laughs> sur la chimie agricole. Okay. <laughs> well said. Now, for the people who don't speak baguette, which I'm assuming that's that's what this is because it sounds like it. Yes, this is baguette. Um, okay, so baguette, the first title, if you could guess what that means. Um, mechanical Evaluation of Surface Planes. Good. And the second one, if you would. Uh, let's see. Not sure about the first word. Of the agriculture of bees? Yeah. <laughs> it's a critique of the agricultural practices of Monsieur de Liebig, uh and chemical agriculture. An introduction or whatever. I really um, thought... I thought I pray was bees. I really don't know, um, but I do know what it's about, and this is kind of the the first really weird note with this story because this Monsieur Liebig uh, is somebody who I only very recently got familiar with. A few months ago, I was randomly wandering through an antique shop with, shall we say, a companion of the female persuasion. I know you don't believe that, but trust I, me, it's part I, of the story. I wasn't going to say anything, but. I I saw a bust of a man sitting on a shelf in the corner. It was a stodgy-looking old fellow, and the name on the bust was Justice Von Liebig. Of course, being the clever and hilarious jackass I am when I'm trying to earn a giggle, I said that he must have been a lawyer to have a name like Justice Liebig. <laughs> well, I was wrong. I actually do so, believe this story because you would say some dumb shit like I, that. <laughs> yeah. Well, he wasn't a lawyer, and we Googled it. He was uh, merely one of the key founders of organic chemistry and pretty much solved famine in Germany forever with his genius inventions. No big deal. Uh, was, did um, he work on nitrogen? Uh, presumably. Because when it comes to solving famine, a lot of it has to do with how to fix nitrogen. Fix nitrogen. As in get it into a form you can store it and distribute it in. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now he's... Make he's do make chemical processes that can actually get nitrogen in a form you can then put it into the soil. Yes, he would have been involved with stuff like that. I mean, he was a big deal, but the main thing he was famous for was his extract of meat, which we'll talk about that here immediately. Um, <laughs> he founded the Liebig Extract of Meat Company in 1862, which was basically a global empire of meat processing So are we talking like making, you know, those little bullion cubes. You're ruining the story I'll, again. Okay, I was just acting what extract of meat meant. 
Yeah, extract of meat, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so it was a global meat processing empire. Um, this meat monolith was founded almost entirely on Justus Liebig's scientific genius reputation alone. But the company was more of a project he set into motion and then left alone. And this is all related, I promise. <laughs> and remember, this is the man that Jules uh, Picard is criticizing in one of his major works. So, the Liebig Extract of Meat Company did all the typical things that most companies did during the Industrial Revolution. It secured supply contracts with ranchers and expanded with the help of true-believing entrepreneurs and grew very quickly, holding land all over the world, including Rhodesia, Kenya, and Argentina. Again, I promise this is related. The main product of this company was called OXO, which is a meat extract cube that got really popular in World War I because they were excellent for rations. Like the bouillon cubes we cook with today, these were individually wrapped, and they were among the first, and everyone realized that that looked sexy as hell, um, so the company started to become really successful because of their individually wrapped bouillon cubes. So the company, in order to increase sales, also started to include trading cards in the packages that you would buy these meat cubes in, which was basically like a toy in a cereal box. But instead of a weak-ass plastic mold of the Tasmanian Devil, it was a really fancy color-printed picture of various scientists working in their labs. Okay, that's actually Most pretty cool. Like, I'm, Yeah, right? I would collect you those. <laughs> You can find them on eBay. Um, actually, I looked it up. You can you can order uh, collections of them from antique shops, and they're well, actually not that expensive. I know what you're getting for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so these trading cards, like we think about baseball cards, basketball cards, Pokemon cards. Back then, they were science man cards. Um, and, of course, for Liebig's own company, the most common card was, of course, a depiction of Eustace von Liebig in his own lab developing this, this meat extract compound. It's pretty cool. I should have included a picture, but I didn't. Not, not, not this time. Maybe later. Plus, with the... Ah, not gonna even make that joke. Okay, so the Liebig Extract of Meat Company was wildly successful, having rooted itself firmly as a business of big science, one of the first. And at this time, a little thing known as scientism was absolutely in vogue, which was a popular belief that exists today in a slightly different form. Um, but back then, it was the belief that through the power of science alone, man could conquer all that lay before him. And we may actually do an entire episode on scientism at some point, or this may end up actually turning into that, whether we like it or not. We shall see. Anyway, so big science for big line was not without its critics. Enter Jules Picard, the patriarch of the Picard dynasty, um, who was, as we mentioned, very critical of Justus Liebig's uh, methods of developing things, uh, basically because of how quickly people like Liebig uh, were changing agricultural, agricultural practices around the world. Picard feared that basically mass-producing, highly preservable, and uh, I don't know what you would say, cheap meat products was a road to the destruction of traditional agriculture and he would be proven right in a lot of ways as supply chains with regarding food and that sort of thing would become worldwide and uh ubiquitous among um major major western cultures are you saying he didn't trust the science well, yeah we, we must we've got to cancel him right now <laughs> 
Dr. Picard, you're fired. Anyway, so <clears throat> combined with fame and entrepreneurship, these science-driven enterprises often expanded so fast there was no way to properly test everything that went out before it went out. Which is to say that what started as a cool way to preserve meat ended up becoming a behemoth of business trusted by the public simply because Eustace von Liebig was on the box. Okay, so this is what branding is. It's a little bit like Bert's bees. Who's Bert? Where are his bees? And why are you smearing them all over your lips? You don't know, but people who shop at Whole Foods trust Bert because he looks what? Earthy and natural. And that's about it. Do you know the story oh. of Bert's bees? I don't, but that's a good okay. point. I was just thinking, who is Vic? Who's like, Vic? Vic? Why, what is VapoRub? <laughs> yeah, like, why do I trust Vic? Uh, yeah, who's Vic? Who's Vic? I don't know. Who's Bert? Who's, who's Eustace von Liebig? We don't know. But his face is on the box, so we're like, cool. So here's the thing. Liebig was actually a scientist. I don't know if Vic was, but Liebig was. But his brand became much more prominent than his actual work, because real science is boring, but dried meat cubes are a delicious treat that everybody can enjoy. And the trading cards are pretty cool there, you know, so there's that. But it didn't just stop with meat cubes. Liebig was used uh, as a brand icon on all of these products, which were highly processed, highly chemified, and most of the time didn't involve Liebig at all. It involved his science staff or whoever was running things within the business because he was just, at this point, the mascot. A little bit like Kentucky Fried Chicken. If you really believe that Colonel Sanders fried up your, your uh, drumsticks, <laughs> you've got another thing coming. <laughs> <laughs> I want to believe. <laughs> the truth is out there. There's a clone of him in every KFC just frying up your biscuits. Anyway, <clears throat> so business demands rapidly outweighed the actual science behind the name Liebig, and eventually the Liebig brand became way better known than Liebig himself. To the point that when Liebig interfered with his business, this business, not even his, he mostly got in the way. Like, he had some things to, that he was going to do, you know, he was like, oh, guys, I, you know, today I'd like to work on the meat. And they're like, well, we've been working on it all night and we have 10 new products to test. So just get out of the way. Um, so after, after a certain point, um, he was almost no longer welcome within his own business, much like the well-known national socialism enthusiast that was Walt Disney, who will, of course, eventually get in the way of the Disney brand. And you know that's coming. Uh, Disney will be changing its name, mark my words. Anyway, this phenomenon of mistaking the brand for the man was nothing unusual, and it would become it would become equally common for people to believe Liebig himself was personally, personally responsible for anything the company did in his name. And I wanted to include uh, one extra example of this kind of thing happening because it's so funny when it does happen, but it's also highly, highly tragic a lot of the times. So I picked a funnier one than a, than a tragic one. So here we go. A good example of how a scientist's name can get mixed up with something that's not even his lies with the Great Moon Hoax of 1835. <laughs> Have you heard of this? No. Is this when they started lying and telling us the moon existed? Uh, it was around this time. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> in this story, the newspaper... How can you uh, land no on something that doesn't exist? Okay, you know what? Just because you've watched one too many moon wave videos while you've been <laughs> looking for a job. It's not my fault. So anyway, <clears throat> this there was this newspaper, and it was known as The Sun. Ooh, and that's it was the opposite of the moon. 
The eternal struggle continues. I know. (laughs) Anyway, so the Sun was considered a serious newspaper up there with the New York Times. Um, It was a direct competitor of the New York Times, in fact. And the Sun began publishing a series of articles in 1835, claiming to be Those written add by up to one 17, of, by the way. You know what? <laughs> this is how I'm it feels, to Aaron. This is how it feels talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't know you're supposed to drop the first two numbers. So uh, there you go. <laughs> go on. All right, I'll finish this sentence if you're done interrupting me. <laughs> uh, we'll see how it goes. So the Sun published a series of articles that were said to have been written by one of the most famous astronomers of the time, Sir John Herschel. I'm sorry, Sir John Herschel. Sir John Herschel. There we go. So the articles using Sir John Herschel's good name (laughs) confirmed that the science was settled. There were definitely beavers on the moon. How can they live on something that doesn't exist? (laughs) Yes, uh, a paper actually printed a story, multiple actually, that the science was settled by a famous scientist and there were definitely beavers on the moon. I wish I were making this up, but I have the clippings if you'd like to see them sometime. Um, Wow, there's a chariot rolling overhead. Oh wow, I can hear that. God doesn't want me to record this episode. (laughs) Have aliens just landed on your roof? No, moon beavers. <laughs> oh, God. They're here. They know. I know. <laughs> the moon beavers have come. They're going to damn me forever. All right. <laughs> uh, anyway, so back on track. So a very famous paper paint, you know, posted up a story by a famous scientist, allegedly, saying that there were beavers on the moon. And, of course, this was proven to be a lie oh so big. But it took several weeks after the articles had been released for the Sun to issue anything that looked like a retraction, which nobody read because it was put in a tiny box in the corner and printed in a font for ants. So, Sir John Herschel, who... Here comes the chariot again. The moon beavers really don't like this. (laughs) So, Sir John Herschel, who read the Sun and saw these articles... had an initial, like, chortling session to himself about the gullibility of the sheeple. Um, they definitely... Goodness gracious. I'm just gonna cut this. So, Sir John Herschel heard that the Sun had published these articles and had an initial chortling session to himself about the gullibility of the sheeple, but he eventually began to get really pissed off when people kept asking him questions about the moon beavers for years afterward. <clears throat> and often people would come up to him and be like, So, Sir John Herschel, you wrote that article about the moon beavers? And he's like, no, it was a fake. The sun wrote it. You know, it's not mine. And they would say, sure. And they'd wink and be like, you and I both know that they had to pay you to shut up, right? (laughs) There really are beavers on the moon. He'd be like, there aren't beavers on the moon. And they frequently wouldn't believe him when he disavowed these stories. (laughs) So the press sucks. (laughs) And uh, before you start saying, wow, people back then were really stupid to think that there were beavers on the moon, check yourself and remember that the people trusted names like Sir John Herschel and fake news was not an accepted part of the culture at the time. 
Not that it should be an accepted part of the culture now, but that's neither here nor there. The press simply cited Sir John Herschel with their ridiculous moon beaver story, and that was all they needed to do to capture public belief. It sort of reminds me of the number of times the press has put out headlines about asteroids almost hitting this planet. Um, and then they say, like, some scientist says, and then three lines in, they say, the scientist didn't actually say this. <laughs> so if you think about it, it's really not all that different of a concept. It's a, it's a presser writing a story about something in their head that they haven't seen, that there's no evidence for. But space beavers are admittedly way funnier than space rocks, so we'll give them a pass this time. <laughs> At least they were creative back then. <laughs> of course, in this instance, known as the Great Moon Hoax, the made-up story increased the sun's circulation dramatically, which was obviously the whole point of the stunt, right? Um, so there's science, and then there's meme science, and one of those makes lots of money, and the other toils away silently in a lab, thanklessly writing critiques of Eustace Liebig's Extractive Meat Company. <laughs> a noble vocation. It's a truly noble vocation. Meme science combined with business and the press has the temptation to make wild claims to get more attention. Attention. I only picked up a Scientific American 15 years ago because it had a flying car, like, right there on the cover. And I'm sure 15 years before that, somebody else picked up a Scientific American because it had a flying car on the cover. Yet 15 years later, I still drive to work every night in my plebeian mom car attached to the road by rubber wheels forevermore. Does this mean science has failed me? No, it just that means that meme science got a little excited and wanted to write about moon beavers again like the old days. <laughs> I do love those uh, those diagrams or um, illustrations you see sometimes and stuff from the 19th century about mm -hmm. what it's going to look like. And like, this is what the world would be like in 1950. And like, you have the... You know, like, people still dress like it's 1880, but, like, walking on lakes and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot Ugh. of uh, French art from that era that's really, really fun to look at. Just, like, flying buses and, you know, people on the moon having picnics and things like that. Um, there's another paradigm of that also of a, of a Colombian art, like American art way back in the day of, like, this land of promise, and it was basically, like, portrayed as this absolute paradise, and then a bunch of people got there, and they're like, wait a second, this is New York! <laughs> oh, God! <laughs> oh, no! So, anyway, it's easy to draw parallels between the meme science phenomenon of space beavers and the like, and the meme science of today, and that's because the same scam has been happening ever since. It is a tale as old as time. The nerds poke their heads out of the lab with something cool they invented. The press and capitalists lose their shit and start up the old money machine. Then the scientists just kind of stand back and wonder, do you think God stays in heaven because he too lives in fear of what he created? Ah, <laughs> uh, I see you're quoting the great greatest work of philosophy of the last century. Spy Kids 2. Spy Kids 2, <laughs> yes. <laughs> So this is the kind of environment that had already existed around the time the Picards were getting started as a family of science. Science had lots of promise, lots of intelligence behind it, and a rich history of bringing the people of the world dazzling inventions. You know, this was around the time of the World's Fair getting started up and, you know, getting rolling and being like a, you know, I don't remember how often it was. I think it was an annual. I don't remember. Um, but it was a pretty frequent thing where people would get together and be like, wow, look at all this cool stuff that was invented by science from all over the world. 
Um, but what we see constantly within the scientific community today and even and well, even today, but definitely back then was just how easy it is to compromise honest scientific work with show business for the filthy lucre of mammon. <laughs> um, like everyone talks about Thomas Edison as if he was the only example of this. Um, but he wasn't the only one. He was probably just the best at marketing. Jules Picard was critical of people like Liebig for just this reason, just as Tesla was critical of Edison for the same kind of thing. Um, as such, two major camps began to naturally establish themselves in the science world. The first camp was the starry-eyed, sort of, let's become an intergalactic superpower kind of science, where people dreamed of visiting other worlds and discovering the secrets of the universe. And the second camp was more of what I like to call science friction, which is more of people using the word science as a way of covering their asses while they do something wildly unethical. Either way, science as a whole was a rapidly developing tool that could be used for good or ill, depending on who was at the controls. Right? Does that make sense? I'm following. I'm, yep, yep. No, I'm tracking so far. I just, I, I like science friction. That's pretty good. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty clever. Thank you very much. Yeah, we should, we should cut in some applause for me for inventing science friction. Forty-five minutes, twenty-two. Aaron gets applause. Yeah. All right. I deserve it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I edit this show. I can give myself applause whenever I want. <laughs> So, I like to focus on the good guys when I can, because science friction writers are much more numerous and don't actually do any work. And the Picard family is interesting mainly because they seem to walk this very fine line between science and show business, at least initially. Um, a lineage that began with Jules Picard's chemistry set and catalog of work would end up visiting the highest of heights and the deepest of depths in a series of high-visibility stunts that would cement the name Picard into history forever. Because you see, in this world, if a scientific achievement doesn't look as cool as it actually is, it basically doesn't count for diddly squat. So you can have the best science in the world, you can be doing all the hardest work, you can be writing the best papers about how Liebig is a, you know, a bad man or whatever. But unless you have some flair with your science, unless you have a little bit of showbiz, uh, nobody cares. <laughs> so this is a lesson that the Picard family would learn together. Um, after Jules Picard did nothing that was exciting and only did, you know, real science. So with all of that context out of the way, let us actually begin with August Picard, shall we? I'm, I'm waiting. I mean, I've, I've been, the anticipation has been building. I know, I know. August Picard was born in Basel, Switzerland on the 28th of January, 1884. He had a twin brother named Jean-Félix Picard, who, being a twin, was amazingly born the same day. <laughs> My credulity is stretched. Could be a coincidence, but there are no coincidences. They clearly conspired to be born on the same day. Anyway, Jean-Félix's biggest accomplishment in life would be getting a shout-out on Star Trek in the form of Captain Jean-Luc Picard, uh, being sort of named after him. And that's about it, except for one tiny little thing we'll talk about later involving outright fraud, but we'll wait on that for a little bit. <laughs> uh, okay, it wasn't really fraud. It was another case of science friction, but we'll get there. So information on August Picard's early life is elusive, but the general theme is pretty much all around the same. The family was all big on science. 
and the Picard twins both took an interest in pursuing careers in that very, very broad field. Uh, Jean-Felix, like his dad, was very much into chemistry. Auguste, on the other hand, found himself gravitating more toward physics. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> so, both of the twins would become doctors of science and teach in various universities. Jean-Felix ended up in the United States, but August would stay in Zurich at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. At the age of 36, Illuminati confirmed, he would marry the daughter of some French historian and start a family. So good for him. All right. And he's just, when you get a good look at him, he's this tall, lanky, really sciencey looking dude. You know, glasses, mustache, balding, except for on the sides of his head. Like, that's, that's our guy, August. All right. Do you remember when we found the science? Found the science? I think you'd already chickened Remind out me. and left the dorms, but we found this weird contraption outside, like with copper pipes and coils of wire and all sorts of we didn't none of us understood what it was but it was sharp on one end and so we used it as a spear and had competitions throwing it down the hallway into the uh, into the trash can because it would stick into the side of it <laughs> and we just called um, it the science well i don't know what you did except for throw it in a trash can which is what most scientists do these days anyway haha <laughs> Anyway, so during the early days of his career in physics, August didn't do that many extravagant things. Much like his father, he kept things low-key and just sort of taught physics and participated in various studies and research projects. In 1922, the University of Brussels made him chair for applied physics, and the very same year, August and his wife would welcome their only son, Jacques Jacques Joch, into the world of science. I have no idea. <laughs> what? Jacques. Just funny imagining him being named Jake. Jake. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll just call him Jakey Boy or something like that when we when we cover him on the next episode. Because that's who we're covering on the, the next part of this episode is his son, Jake's. Jacques. I never knew how to pronounce that. Jacques. Jacques. Jacques? How dare you? That's. Oh, sorry. Jacques? Jacques. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. There's, yeah, we no, no, we, no, no S sound on the end. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. That sounds French to me. Okay, so anyway. Before he got cool, August was involved with what was known as the Solvay Congress, which was a conference for nerds. Um, have you ever heard of the Solvay Congress? I have not. Okay, it's kind of a big deal. It was a, it was a get-together for a bunch of science people. That had a three-year cycle. How much did August pay you to say that? Uh, he paid me nothing. I just love science, <laughs> as Reddit would say. So one year, um, it was a three-year cycle, and one year the nerds would get together and talk about open problems in physics. The next, the nerds would get together to approach open problems in chemistry. And then they would take a gap year, and the whole thing would begin again. And at these conferences, you see the name Auguste Picard. He was at almost all of them. And you see lots of other very sciencey names, such as Marie Curie and the aforementioned Albert Einstein. I don't remember mentioning Albert Einstein, but here we are. <laughs> I must have moved some paragraphs around in the not script. <laughs> anyway, in 1921, the Solvay Conference on Physics took place. 
But Germans were not allowed to go because, well, you know, there was this whole culture of hating on Germany after World War One, um, very I, quickly I, developing. I feel like that also kind of handicaps the whole science thing, being that, you know, a very, very large number of uh, really important scientists were German. And from Germany, say, like, you know, Albert Einstein. <laughs> So, um, all the other European nations were virtually virtue signaling to each other about how much they didn't like Germany, so no Germans allowed, but of course, Albert Einstein, as I said, was from Germany, so he was disallowed from attending. But that's not exactly fair, because Einstein didn't exactly identify as a German, as you might know. Um, but living there was close enough for the Solvay people, so Einstein was just disallowed, so he said, I'm just gonna go start my own party with hookers and blackjack. And instead of going to the 1921 Solvay Conference, he took up an offer from the president of the Zionist organization and biochemist Chaim, Chaim Weizmann? Chaim. Sorry, Chaim. To visit the United States. This turned out to be the best party ever because Chaim Weizmann would also become the first president of, president of Israel. So that's a big win for Albert because it doesn't take an Einstein to know it pays to have friends in high places, am I right? So suck it, Solve Conference of 1921. <laughs> uh, there you go. <clears throat> I'm but enlightened. The, there's a there's a joke in here about how uh, August Picard would actually get higher than any of those high places because he's going to go to the stratosphere, baby. <laughs> but anyway, it doesn't matter because Albert Einstein and August Picard were pretty much besties anyway. They, August Picard was not happy that Albert Einstein was disinvited just because he lived in Germany. Um, because August took a huge interest in Einstein's theory of uh, relativity. And he was also captivated by the conference's tangential interest in ballooning. Um, and August believed that high-altitude experimentation using balloons could serve to prove the theory of relativity um, by many experience, but another, a major one was the measurement of cosmic rays, uh, as they were called which was something that he believed could only be done in a high-altitude balloon. Um, August Picard's motivations for getting into ballooning were many. Um, so allow me to quote from his book on the matter, Earth, Sky, and Sea, published in 1956. I don't know if you want to read these. There's a lot of them, but... I can, I can, I can, I can give can it a go. tag team. Tag team? Yeah. <clears throat> I have said that it was the study of cosmic rays which had led me into the stratosphere. As a matter of fact, I also had another reason for going up there myself. I wanted to induce the air services to use the high atmosphere to travel at high speeds at an altitude where the rarefied air offers less resistance. But since, in the stratosphere, the low pressures make human life impossible, I was going to have to make use of an airtight cabin permitting the maintenance of an almost normal atmosphere. The specialists of those days considered my suggestion as unrealizable. What today appears elementary to us in those days seemed utopian, but the single objection that they were able to make to me was that up till then no one had ever done it. How often have I heard reasoning of this sort? But it is just the function of the engineer to place his reliance upon theory when creating something new. If I had been an aviator, I should have constructed, at the beginning, a stratospheric aeroplane. But being an aeronaut, I plunged into the construction of a balloon. It was, besides, a relatively simple thing to suspend an airtight cabin to the free balloon. 
Yup. I really like how that, that became much more scientific sounding as you went along. <laughs> I really yeah. started to believe that you were August <laughs> Picard. <laughs> had, to, had to get into the groove. Yep. <laughs> so the goal at this point is the stratosphere, which is about 50,000 feet in the air. Um, and August's method of choice was obviously going to be a massive balloon because he was, as he said in this quote, an aeronaut. Now... You may be wondering to yourself, as August did just now, why balloons? Well, it's quite simple. Back then, the only things that could get you high enough to kill you was ether and hot air balloons. So, <laughs> let's talk a bit about balloons. The first balloon-based flights in history occurred over a century earlier in the 1780s. Wow, way longer than that. Yeah, way over a century. Whatever, it doesn't matter. When the Montgolfier brothers of Paris launched half their family farm aloft in a homemade balloon. This expedition into the heavens was preceded by many smaller experiments, beginning with a basketball-sized balloon set aloft over burning hay, and progressing to much larger-scale versions of the same experiments. Experiments that would take off, fly for a bit, scare the peasants, and then get trashed by said peasants once they landed. <laughs> That's not a joke. That's actually what happened. People would see these things flying, and they'd be like, What the hell is that? And then when it landed, they would just beat this shit out of <laughs> Excellent. The, the cringe scientist versus the based peasant. <laughs> <laughs> the Chad peasant beating up the balloon. Uh... But the tour de force for the Montgolfier brothers was their 37,500 cubic foot capacity monstrosity of a balloon, which was painted sky blue and decorated with signs of the zodiac and multiple suns. Illuminati confirmed. Illuminati confirmed. I mean, those are literally alchemical symbols. And if you go look at this thing, it's, it's really bizarre. Remind me to tell you about the film A Trip to the Moon before we get done with this. Because there's there's something interesting that goes on in that that the first the first I think feature film no it's only 13 minutes long that can't be right I don't know what it was it was the first of something anyway <clears throat> initially the king of France who was I guess just there with Marie Antoinette literally she was there uh, with the king suggested putting two criminals aboard for the maiden voyage because if somebody was going to die it might as well be some filthy criminals. <laughs> probably with teeny tiny little drug charges or something. <laughs> so the inventors decided I don't think they had drug charges in 1783. Just go with it. <laughs> probably had a piece of bacon that wasn't taxed or something. I don't know. The inventors decided against putting criminals in the balloon and instead put a duck, a sheep, and a rooster in the basket first. The first major test would be, of course, launched on September 11th, 1783. Illuminati confirmed. But the real voyage with the duck, sheep, and rooster would be launched September 19th of that same year. Hilariously, the sheep was included because it was agreed that sheep were pretty close to humans in regards to physiology. Make of that what you will. I mean, definitely closer than a duck, I would think. Sure, but why couldn't they send a monkey? How many monkeys were in France in 1783? I mean, I don't know. Didn't, didn't they, like... They didn't have any monkeys there? They had, like, zoos and things. But they're probably really expensive to get a monkey. All right, they used the sheep. There was a sheeple joke in there. You didn't get it. Whatever. Anyway. <laughs> oh! <laughs> get it? Oh, okay. look at that. So anyway, from here, new techniques would be developed to get more balloons in the sky. Balloons would be used for observation during the Civil War and the Napoleonic Wars, as well as in World War I, with the development of blimps and so-called dirigibles. 
But these balloons could only reach the troposphere, uh, while also supporting the lifestyles of the humans aboard. I don't know why I wrote lifestyles, but they couldn't get any higher without dying. I should have just said it like that. Oh, wait, there's a joke there. Oh, my God, I'm so out of practice. <sighs> anyway, they could only get as high as the troposphere. To reach the actual stratosphere, they would need further developments in this technology, because when you're doing science, it really helps if you can breathe, too. So, basically, balloon technology was limited to relatively low altitudes for quite a while, because you would just get so high and that you would die. And this was proven in 1927 by an unfortunate fellow named Hawthorne C. Gray, a military balloon pilot who at the time held the record for altitude achieved in a balloon, 44,000 feet. Sadly, Hawthorne Gray died on his final record-breaking flight because of a failure in his oxygen delivery system. His basket drifted along with his limp body aboard for hours before it crashed into a tree somewhere in Tennessee. And his final journal entry read, Sky deep blue, sun very bright, sand all gone. <laughs> he ran out of sandbags. Um, so he had to wait for the gas to disperse in his balloon before he could come back down, and it didn't disperse fast enough. So, sad. Seeing this as the next hurdle to be jumped in ballooning, August Picard and his buddy Sir Paul Kipfer began developing an airtight aluminum capsule that would shield them from the harsh elements of the stratosphere. Work on this capsule began in 1930. The capsule, spherical in shape and only seven feet from end to end, would be the first pressurized gondola to ever launch beneath a balloon. And I have included a helpful picture below to give you an idea of what this contraption looked like. Would you mind describing this depiction for the listeners? Uh, yeah, so it still looks like a bomb. Um, it's sort of a, like a, it's a, just a big cylinder. Um, and you're just expecting to see like a comically large fuse sticking out of it. Um, but yeah, it's just this big, not cylinder, sphere. It's just this big sphere uh, attached to a balloon, and there are men with mustaches standing around it, and one dude who looks like Ben Franklin with a mustache sticking his head out of the little porthole on the side of the sphere. And then there's a bunch of people who honestly look kind of uninterested considering what's happening in front of them, who are apparently the audience, but they seem to mostly be talking to each other, so clearly they were just there to, you know mix with the right people and be seen and whatnot, and the the real scientists are the men with mustaches standing around and in the contraption. Right, and the guy poking his head out of the capsule looks rather yeah. pleased with himself. The one who looks say? like Ben Franklin with a mustache. Yeah, that's August Picard. Now, do you notice anything else about this depiction? There's what looks like train tracks on the side. Hmm. How about some of that text at the bottom there? Oh, it's in Italian. Hmm. La conquista dell'aria, the conquest of the air. Um, i più leggeri dell'aria. I don't remember what leggeri means. Più hmm. means more. The more something of the sky. La ascensione scientifica, scientific ascent. Il Pallone stratosferico di Picard, the stratospheric balloon of Picard, mm. and uh, I see Liebig's name. Yep, <laughs> there it is. This is and one of those trading cards. Oh, yeah. Per minestra. Doesn't that mean? I think that means for soup. Yeah. <laughs> 
So it's a it's a trading card that was included in one of these meat extract cubes. So oh, Jules Picard. Oh yeah. Jules Picard. So it's for soup because it's the bouillon. Okay. Yeah, so that's, that's not right. about the image. That's not about the image of soup. No. But here's what I'm trying to say is uh, August's father was critical of this man, and here is his son. Uh, <laughs> here is August himself on one of the trading cards in uh, one of Liebig's uh, boxes. Interesting, right? Mm. 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 Doesn't mean anything. I just thought it was interesting. Anyway, <laughs> here's another badass picture of August Picard loading cargo onto his capsule. If you'll just scroll down a little bit. This is from a later flight taken in 1932, but I included it just for Picard's determined grimace. Pretty good picture, right? That is a pretty good picture. I The pillow thing in that basket looks like the same one from the first picture. It's it's presumably supplies. That's a little too big for a person's head. No, no, but the pillow thing. The oh, pillow yeah. covering I, over the top looks like what they used in the crash helmets. I figure it's just some kind of covering. But yes, so that's that's what the capsule looked like in photography. But again, this is a later depiction. Um, now, what you don't see in these pictures, and you might see, you can't actually see it in the first picture that I put up, was Picard's genius design for temperature control. Because the higher you go, the more cold it, the colder it gets, but also like the hotter it gets because the sun gets essentially warmer. So you have to have temp control. Um, in order to keep control of the temperature in the capsule, Picard had painted half of the sphere black and the other half white. And when it got too hot or cold, uh, Picard would activate a small propeller on the side of the contraption, causing it to rotate toward or away from the sun. Which is kind of cool, right? That's, that's pretty forward thinking. Yeah. Unfortunately, this would prove to do exactly jack shit on the initial flight for reasons we will discuss in a moment. But it was a pretty cool idea. Um... Now, <clears throat> on his first voyage to heaven, August would be accompanied by his fellow scholar, Paul Kipfer. Their launch site was in Augsburg, Germany, a location chosen because that was where the actual balloon was being constructed. So they built the uh, capsule in Switzerland and they moved the they built the uh, balloon in Germany. And they had to sort of bring the pieces together to create the final form. Um, so the Picard and so Picard and his boys rolled their airtight capsule out to Augsburg to try their hand at thwarting the heavens. And from here, it's probably best if I let August Picard himself describe exactly what happened, uh, because I'd basically just be paraphrasing it anyway. And we will be quoting from his book, the same one, Earth, Sky, and Sea, published about 30 years after the initial voyage in 1956. Which is important. It's important to know that this was 30 years after the initial, you know... Thing. So memory might be skewed, there might be details added in after the fact that were thought of later, science that was done later to, you know, maybe theorize about what was seen in the stratosphere. Um, but one of the first things that August Picard talks about in this book is how he cleverly avoided the international restrictions on such a flight. And the crash helmets were a perfect example of this. They didn't actually wear them, they just made them, took a picture and said, take that, Germany. Um, and the same goes for the ballast that they used. Um, August describes here how the ballast system worked and how they got around international restrictions. Would you care to read this one as well? Certainly, certainly. <clears throat> it was sufficient to apply the principle of the air chamber. Let there be a container provided with two straight-through taps. 
By means of a funnel, we pour the ballast into the container through the upper cock, the ballast being composed, in our case, of lead shot. Then, after this cock is closed, the lower cock is opened, and through it the ballast pours directly toward the outside, so that the lead shot in falling might not injure spectators, a very fine shot is needed. I made sure myself that there was no danger, by standing at the bottom of the big chimney of the University of Brussels under a rain of shot which was poured on my head from a height of 165 feet. <laughs> All would- <laughs> That's- I mean, good for him for really testing it out himself. Yeah, yeah. Just standing under a chimney and letting somebody rain shot onto your head. All would have been for the best if international regulations had permitted anything other than sand or water for ballast. What was to be done? To cut all discussion short, I declared that I had as balanced lead sand. This explanation aroused no objection. However, by definition, sand is a non-metallic substance, and nobody has ever seen lead sand. I thus imitated the famous priest in the anecdote who was served with roast chicken on a Friday. He baptized it carp and was thus able to enjoy it with a quiet conscience. (laughs) So, not the most ethical thing in the world, but they have a flight to catch. (laughs) So, there, there were a lot of workarounds that went into making this thing, like, legal to fly. Um, and the laws weren't that strict back then, but there was enough to get in the way of science, but not August Picard's science. One of the main considerations in the matters of flight, of course, is the weather. August and Paul wanted to launch their balloon in the September of 1930, but they ran into some problems. Care to read this one as well? Augsburg, September 1930. On the 14th September, the balloon was inflated. Knowing that the wind would hinder the rigging of this large balloon and could even render departure impossible, we had waited several weeks for favorable weather forecasts. But, to our great despair, the weather changed abruptly. A violent wind took a hand and we had to empty the balloon and give up the idea of departure. A great disappointment, it goes without saying, for the public and the press. Notice how he capitalizes press. (laughs) He loses a couple points in my book for caring about what the foreign-owned press thinks. (laughs) But the weather turned out to be so bad that they ended up waiting a whole lot longer before they could get their bon voyage. Um, uh, Yes, and as we shall see, when they did finally get going, it didn't go exactly according to plan. Just like the first voyage, there were weather problems and, you know, again... It was still essentially the first voyage. Like, I didn't take off the first time, but this is their first time using this thing. So you can sort of expect some problems and some challenges, but uh, care to read the next one? We waited once more for a clement sky, but in vain. We had to wait until spring, winter not being a season favorable to an experiment of this sort. Finally, on the 26th of May, 1931, the weather forecasts were favorable. In the night of the 26th-27th of May, we got the balloon inflated, 100,000 cubic feet of hydrogen. But on the morning of the 27th, the wind rose once more and knocked the balloon about. The cabin was thrown out of the transporter and put slightly out of shape. Later, we were to notice the consequences of this. However, with my friend and collaborator, Paul Kipfer, I went into the cabin and we closed the manhole behind us. The wind increased. To hold the balloon, they attached, without my knowledge, a supplementary rope to the hoop. At 3.57 p.m., Kipfer, looking out of one of the portholes, said to me, A factory chimney is passing underneath us! 
They had let the balloon go and forgotten to give us the signal of departure that had been agreed upon. <laughs> so that's right. The first time they launched this thing, it was by accident. And they were just lucky that they were inside. Um, but also, like, yeah. It, so they, they weren't ready to go, but they were also eh, about as ready as you could be. So with the, ca the capsule having been blown off its transport, the damage he's talking about here is the little propeller that could twist the Miracle Egg around to control the temperature. Um, that uh, probably hit another chimney. It, either way, it was damaged beyond use. Um, so now these men are soaring in a pressurized capsule directly to the stratosphere with no warning, final safety check, or ability to control the temperature inside the cabin. Good. So good. That, that's good. It's going well. <laughs> going well. Yeah, I hope they packed a coat. Um, and there were other problems. One of the first things August noted noticed was the sound of rushing water. It turns out it was a leak in the air pressure. Um, he and Paul Kipfer scrambled around to find the source and discovered a small hole near one of the gauges. Using Vicks VapoRub, I'm sorry, using Vaseline, they plugged the hole. How that worked, I have no idea, but I am not a man of science. Uh, allegedly, it was tight, tight enough of a cutoff to keep the air from leaking out and keeping the cabin pressurized, which is interesting. Uh, the problem was, of course, that they had lost a lot of oxygen that had gone out through this hole. Um, thankfully, August had a, uh, had a solution, and just in time, too, as they were uh, very, very quickly ascending to new heights. And this is a much longer quote, so I'll just... Do you want me to just read it, or would you care? Up to you. Um, I'll let you do it. You've been doing it so, so well so far. <laughs> okay, okay. <clears throat> Both of us confident in this last resource, I went on with my work. But the hole was big. Bit by bit, however, the whistling grew feebler, then was silent. Never have I appreciated silence so much. The pressure already in our little home had gone down to less than two-thirds of normal. Happily, we had a reserve of liquid oxygen. I poured some of it on the floor in small quantities, and the oxygen rapidly evaporating increased the pressure. We still went up. The sky became darker. Twenty-five past four, twenty-eight minutes to go. We were still in Augsburg, sixteen hundred fifty feet above sea level. What altitude, Kipfer? Fifty-one thousand two hundred feet. In less than half an hour, we had gone up over nine miles. The balloon, whose shape at the moment of departure was rather that of a dried pear than an apple, had now inflated following upon the expansion of the gas and had become perfectly spherical. The excess gas escaped by the neck, and our aerostat reached its first position of equilibrium. At last, here we are in the stratosphere. Around us the sky. The beauty of this sky is the most poignant thing we have ever seen. It is somber, dark blue or violet, almost black. If the air were perfectly transparent, we should see the Earth over a radius of 280 miles, and our visual field would cover 246,000 square miles of the planet, more than the surface of all of France. But beneath the stratosphere there is the troposphere, whose upper limit on that day was about 7.5 miles. It is much less transparent. At the horizon, we perceive the confines of the two zones, as if drawn with a ruler. If one looks obliquely across the troposphere, the earth, so distant, is invisible. There is nothing to be seen but fog. But the more the glance is directed downwards, the more visible is the earth. Beneath us is the Bavarian plain. But even if we look vertically down, the picture is blurred, as if in a bad photograph. There is, in fact, between us and the earth, nine-tenths of the atmosphere, almost as much as if, at sea level, we were looking at the moon. Alone, the mountains emerge. <laughs> you can stop there. 
Um, yeah, so this is huge. Paul Kipfer and August Picard have just become the first men to reach the stratosphere. As such, they really only had their imagination to preconceive what they would find there, which means their perception is essentially fresh. Why does this matter? Well, we'll get into it, but there's a couple other things I wanted to point out about this. Notice that they noticed that the notice that they noticed. They uh they described the sky as being violet, not quite black, uh, dark blue, um, which was similar to what the other guy who got into the stratosphere had written in his last journal entry. Um, but also that they could visually see that the atmosphere was different depending on how high you were. When you're stuck in the troposphere, you can't see through, almost as if there's you're surrounded by a really thin cloud. But once you get to a place where there's a lot less of that uh, atmosphere, you can start to see that massive cloud, which is sort of the bubble of the troposphere, right? Which to me is like one of the most alien things I can imagine, right? Like up to this point in history, as far as we know, nobody had ever seen this before. It had to boggle the mind quite a bit, right? You would think. Well, I think the I think noting these perceptions are important um, because perception, um, their perception here was essentially fresh, and all they had were the preconceptions of the time of what this might actually look like. They had theories and people who'd gotten kind of high, but not quite that high, and they had all of these models still floating around about what the Earth was actually like from far away. What you know, what the Moon was like. Like, and I've got some information about some science fiction that was going around at the time uh, that used different models of how the Earth was and how the where the Moon was, how big the Moon was, what the atmosphere was like, what the stars were like. They were still operating on a lot of archaic ideas. Um, and so I was just thinking about the first time I went to New York City, and I'd only seen the place in movies and television, and I knew what it was like, um, but I didn't know what it was you actually just didn't, like. You it, just didn't realize how badly it smelled. Yeah, I didn't realize the smell was horrifying. Um, and when I got first I got on the taxi, I had no idea what I was looking at because I was searching for landmarks and things that I knew from the movies. But I had a completely mental different, like a completely different mental picture of the city until I was actually there. It was the same with Mount Rushmore. I went there very briefly when I was young and perceived it as being like this massive thing. And then when I went back as an adult, I was like, why do I remember this being so big? It's like, well, because you were a kid. And it's like, yep, that's exactly right. Now it doesn't look so big. But the, both of these experiences felt the same. It was like information overload. I couldn't square what I was seeing with what I had seen before. Um, it's called cognitive dissonance. And, you know, I experienced this very surreal feeling the second time I went to Mount Rushmore when I was much older, because I was like, this feels like it's been replaced with a toy, right? Very strange. Now I bring this up because the, this is the 1956 account that we're reading from here. Uh, but I have a 1931 account here below, which is the, uh, core for a lot of theorizing that's kind of silly. Um, I'll read this for you. I've cited it somewhere. Hold on, I cropped the citation. Unbelievable, Aaron, come on. Ah, 10 miles high and an airtight ball. That's the name of the article, and I didn't include the, uh, the actual citation. Wow. It doesn't matter. You can find it if you Google 10 miles high in an airtight ball. You'll get some weird stuff, too, <laughs> but you'll uh, you'll find the article eventually. So here's his initial per, uh, perception of the uh, from the stratosphere of the Earth. 
as recorded in 1931, conflicting with his report in 1956. In the first half hour, the balloon shot upward nine, uh, nine miles. Through portholes, the observers saw the Earth through copper-colored, then bluish haze. It seemed a flat disk with upturned edge. At the 10-mile level, the sky appeared a deep, dark blue. With observations complete, the observers tried to descend but couldn't while their oxygen tanks emptied, blah, 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 blah. So his perception was that there was a flat disk with an upturned edge, and that's what he was seeing in 1931. Now, before anybody starts screaming flat earth, I just wanted to bring this in because I like it and I think it's weird because perceptions change and we remember things differently as time goes on. Um, I've and, heard what I want to hear. Okay. <laughs> so... Between 1931 and 1956, um, August Picard would return to the stratosphere multiple times to update this perception. So at first, and you'll see lots of people uh, like cite this article specifically to say, oh, they hushed him up because he saw that the earth was flat or something like that. And I mean, believe what you want to believe, but I really believe it's just a matter of perception with updated information as he returned to the stratosphere. Um... But I couldn't cover August Picard without adding it in because it's impossible to avoid finding Pastor Dale's sermon on why the earth is flat with a dome of water overhead um, without finding Pastor Dale's also using this article as proof. I just... And if you Google August Picard, if you're... If you are if you dig at all, you're going to just find people like, this guy was, was... You know, he proved that the earth was flat and there's a dome overhead. Well... Yeah, in the initial, and all they have is this article. It's like, eh, okay. But then I included this this just for fun, and I'll cut in the audio for the audience. Um, do you see the link here? In the doc? Are you there? Oh. Yes, uh, sorry, I did not realize that I accidentally muted myself. Oh, well. um, should I Should I watch this? You should watch it right now, because it's this- hilarious. Hennessy commercial? Yes, it's a Hennessy commercial. (laughs) Okay. Alright. It's good. It's really good. When a man reaches the edge, after he goes as far as any man can possibly go, How does his son continue? Okay, but what did that have to do with Hennessy? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> it's just like a really great movie, and then at the end, there's a bottle of liquor. <laughs> oh, I just thought that was interesting. That no, that was interesting. I that's like, granted, the the content of commercials is often incredibly tangential to what's being advertised, but that takes it to a whole new level. It's right? like, look at this man. He got to the stratosphere. Drink Hennessy. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I loved it. I thought it was one of the best ads ever because it's not trying to make you hate yourself. Um, <laughs> but I thought I'd include it because uh, a lot of flat earthers say that it's mocking them. Um, 
Do you see why? I mean, it did look vaguely like he went through a dome of water. Yeah, yeah. So they think that's that's the uh, elites winking to each other or something. I just I could not get through August Picard without mentioning the Flat Earthers. So with that out of the way, let's get back to the adventure. <laughs> So as the men spent more time hanging up there in the stratosphere... Well, actually, I need to mark that for a Hennessy ad. <laughs> 125. Hennessy. I got a lot of notes today. It's going to be a long edit. All right. <clears throat> so as the men spent more time hanging out up there in the stratosphere, having a cosmic wave measuring contest, they began to experience rapid and dramatic temperature changes. Initially, things got very cold and frosted the whole interior of the capsule. Um, but then, as the capsule's dark side turned toward the sun and began to descend, the heat increased rapidly. A little quote. Its radiance is twice as intense as its sea level. The aluminium became heated and the frost dropped off. It began to snow in our cabin. So, yeah, it's now it's snowing inside the cabin, so that's good. But as things warm up, the men begin to get thirsty. Bit by bit, the temperature rose. 70 degrees Fahrenheit was very pleasant. 85 degrees Fahrenheit was bearable, but over 100 degrees was too much. We sat down as low as possible in the sphere, as there it was the coolest, but we still got very thirsty. I had asked that two big bottles of water should be put in our cabin. We found only one small one. Jeez, the, the prep... Who, whoever was in charge of, like, the logistical preparations here. Like, they let the thing go without telling them. They didn't pack the water. Like, yep. <laughs> the propeller wow. broke. Beneath the flooring with which the rounded bottom of our cabin was covered, the condensed water had collected. There would have been enough of it, but dust, oil, and mercury made it into an undrinkable emulsion. Oh, no, no shit. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, Kipford discovered a spring. Fresh water, clean and distilled, flowed along the wall, on the shady side. There was not much of it, but it sufficed to wet our tongues from time to time. I found something even better. When we poured liquid oxygen into an aluminum goblet and waited for the oxygen to evaporate, a thick layer of frost was formed outside. <laughs> so don't bring water, but do bring a goblet <laughs> on your voyage to the heavens. An I aluminium mean, goblet and some yeah. liquid oxygen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, wouldn't you want to have something to dip in the space water when you finally crack through the heavenly firmament? This is called drinking ahead. <laughs> Eventually, the capsule began to descend more quickly, even though it was still very slow. Paul Kipfer unfortunately estimated that at their current rate of descent, they wouldn't land for several days. This was, of course, unacceptable, so they began to release some gas from the balloon to increase their descent speed. This would be a delicate operation, as if, you know, releasing too much gas could doom the men to a very fast, very deadly descent. So they had to be very, very cautious about how much they let out of the balloon. And they did have a parachute attached to the capsule just in case, but it was considered a last resort, uh, because, again, it's a heavy aluminum capsule. So, as they returned to this earthly plane, they tried to divine what country they might land in. They didn't actually know where the hell they'd end up on re-entry, much like those cosmonauts who were equipped with shotguns in case they had to fight bears upon touching back down in Russia. <laughs> you know about that, right? Yes, yes. Okay, now. Yeah. So the capsule hurtled along at a relatively low altitude for some time. And you can, you can begin with below. Below us, twilight flowed through the valley of the River Inn. On the ground, we found out later, people saw an unusual sight. 
the balloon still in the sun's rays appeared to the Earth people brilliantly illuminated against the dark sky. Until today, only the planets and the moon have been seen lighted up in this fashion, so they took us for another heavenly body. To the observers nearest at hand, the illuminated part of the balloon appeared in the form of a crescent. Had a little moon been born? Nothing was missing. Oh, I don't think I was supposed to read Nothing Was Missing. It's fine. But it, it's just, it's kind of haunting to think about people just like walking on the road to go home or something like that and looking up and seeing this dot hurtling against the dark sky. I just find that amazing. So it must have been something for the peasants to below to behold, watching these starry-eyed men of science floating above them, hoping they don't crash into a tree and die like that other one. But at last... The balloon did touch down, but only briefly. The balloon bounced and flew over a glacier. It was a maze of crevasses. One moment I could see the lights of a village, and I flashed a signal towards it with a torch. The next day we learned that this signal was briefly... Or, sorry, was seen perfectly from... (laughs) Gurgle. (laughs) Google. Mm -hmm. Where is this? Is this in Switzerland? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, I've never heard of Gurgle. Anyway... (laughs) But the village disappeared in the valley. At last, we approached a flat place, free from crevasses. Now was the moment. Kipfer pulled the strap of the ripping panels. The balloon quickly emptied. We touched the ice. The cabin rolled a little, then came to rest. And with that, the first journey into the stratosphere had come to an end, like a bowling ball. (laughs) They just rolled about a little bit. Um, And, uh... It wasn't a roaring success, but they'd done it, and this initial operation invited the attention of the beloved press, um, even more than August Picard had anticipated. In fact, it created such a media buzz that the next time August decided to go up, he had actual sponsors. Oh, wow. Could they afford a bottle of water this time? Yep, they could, and also all of the hydrogen was provided by uh, a specific company. Um he had some chemical company, I think the Lindy Chemical Company or something like that, a Dow Metal. Um, they provided him with all the materials he needed to per- perfect his balloon design and do it all over again. Uh, unfortunately, though, because he had sponsors, Picard had the unfortunate job of shilling for his sponsors this time before going on his flight. Ah, uh, yes, this balloon brought to you by Raid Shadow Legends. Pretty much. Um, It's a good and bad thing, and the bad part is that now corporations are involved, so the science is sponsored and loses some of its, you know, some of its heart, you know? Like, before it was just a man in his capsule with his crash helmet floating to the stars, and now it's sponsored by Dow. (laughs) Um, But... The best part about the sponsors, though, is we actually have filmed interviews of August himself describing what he was up to amidst the heavens. And you can watch this one if you want. I'll definitely cut in the audio um, because it's interesting. But this is a this is a Professor Picard himself describing how the capsule works, what they're going to do with the cosmic uh, rays. And there's just this businessman there trying to keep up (laughs) and also trying to get him to say all the company names. Already, Professor Picard, we are very glad to uh, present you for the Union Carbide and Carbon Corporation with the hydrogen for your expedition. We believe and are sure that the Lindy Company has made the purest hydrogen that has ever been produced. We recognize that any impurity may result in the loss of altitude and affect the expedition. I would like to have uh, your regards, your uh, comments on this regard. What? 
Thank you very much, Mr. Carpenter, for all this hydrogen. That's definitely a great big lot you expect to accomplish with the cosmic ray. Well, first I want to thank you and thank uh, the Union Carbide Company for all this hydrogen you give me. And you give for the whole thing. Everything else you did for our helping us to walk. Now, uh, since this hydrogen is good as that, I'm sure that it will be lift us just as high as any hydrogen could lift us. And you know we are going to measure the cosmic rays very high. We want to be as high as possible so that we have as little air as possible between us and the orig origin of the cosmic rays. And of course, the higher we are, the less air we have, and the better result we'll get. And we sure we'll get the most, the best result we can get there. Very much hope that we'll get higher and higher up than one has ever been before. Yeah, because the interview is particularly funny because you can tell Picard is just a man of science and he's not very experienced at shilling. He's still mostly focused on, like, cosmic rays. Um, but his formerly unadulterated pressure capsule is now tatted up with corporate logos like it's goddamn NASCAR. But you gotta do what you gotta do. And... Over the next few years, as we mentioned earlier, Picard and his team would visit the strat uh, stratosphere several more times from even more locations. His balloon would launch from the United States and the Soviet Union, for some reason, for visits to the heavens, but Picard wasn't always the pilot. In 1933, Illuminati confirmed his brother Jean-Felix was stated, uh, slated sorry, to take a flight from the World's Fair, but he was replaced by military pilots at the very last minute also suspicious. Now, while the balloon was pretty cool and everything, August Picard had other goals. Having proven that a lighter-than-air pressurized capsule could visit the waters above, August Picard began development of a heavier-than-water pressurized capsule to visit the waters below. Work on this new vehicle began prior to World War II, and the initial designs for this so-called bathyscaphe, or bathysphere, were completed by 1937. But the actual construction and investment in this new venture was all interrupted by, you know, a little thing called World War II, where science was hijacked completely for the war effort and exploration of the depths was postponed, but not in Germany, where they were flying to Antarctica in super UFOs or whatever. It would not be until 1953 that Picard would be able to personally test his bathyscaphe. And after this expedition, Auguste would fade into the background while his son Jacques, Jacques took up the job of fulfilling the destiny of the Picard family name, which we will cover part in part two of this exploration extravaganza. In 1954, August Picard retired from his work and watched on from the background as Jacques Picard took up the torch. Many of Picard's dreams had been realized in his lifetime, but now it was time to watch the next generation carry on the job. August died of a heart attack in 1962 in Lausanne, Switzerland. He had dreamed of an aerial superhighway between America and Europe, populated by high-altitude balloon craft like his own, which he describes below in this scripted interview, which I will also cut in. And uh, <laughs> that's basically it. And I have a couple of quotes from his website maintained by his great-grandson. Uh, or no, his grandson. Maybe his great-grandson. Bertrand Picard. And here it is. <clears throat> the question now is not so much whether humans can go even further afield and populate other planets, but rather how to organize things so that life on Earth becomes more worthy of living. So I found that strange because his son... Uh, or not, not his son, but his grandson, Bertrand, 
is still doing balloon things, but he's also doing like, you know, all sorts of like globalist stuff where he's like, oh yes, we're going to go to a meeting and have lots of food and talk about how all of the useless eaters are using too much energy and stuff like that. Um, classic. Classic. We'll get classic into Bertrand and Picard a little bit, but uh, we'll save that for the wrap up on the next part. Now for one last anecdote about the press getting science wrong before we close out this episode. I would like to read to you an article from the Canberra uh, ACT, National Library of Australia, published in 1926, on September 3rd. Illuminati confirmed. Just kidding. <clears throat> this is about Jean-Félix Picard. All right. The headline is, Asked $250,000 for a trip to Mars in 1954. Stratosphere, uh, stratos wow, I spelled it stratosphere. Stratosphere explorer Dr. Jean-Félix Picard, he did actually go to the stratosphere once or twice, today guaranteed a trip to Mars by 1954 to anyone willing to pay $250,000 for the ride. The scientist said that his flight had been set for 1954 because he believed Mars would be in the most favorable, favorable position for the observations he wanted to make there. Quote, if there is oxygen on Mars, there must be vegetable life, and where there is vegetable life, there can be animal life, even a race of human beings, he said. Dr. Jean-Felix Picard and his wife, Dr. Jeanette Picard, are working on plans for the projected flight. He said that he would go to Mars in free balloons, which had been tested and proven. An ultra-modern gondola for the balloons in the mock-up stage in a laboratory in the uh, is in the mock-up stage in a laboratory in Minneapolis. He said, "All that was needed was a sponsor with a minimum of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to devote to the adventure advancement of science." Doctor Picard said. What do you make uh, of this? I don't know about this one. Yeah, what what do you think about this? Well, the timetable that's pretty interesting. Uh, Twenty-eight years in the future. Yeah. Um, I don't really know how balloons are going to function without gravity. Yeah. Or how you know that there's vegetable and animal life on Mars or other human beings. So, allegedly, Jean-Felix was mis misquoted. And the science friction writers at the press got it into their heads that he was promising a, a balloon ride to space. Um, which shows just what, again, what the press can be. They can get a little bit, a uh, little bit ahead of themselves and say things that scientists were saying that they weren't actually saying. Uh, so I just thought I'd include that because it's, it's right there. <laughs> there it is. Um, he never said any of this as far as I know, or at least it was disavowed at a later point. But yeah, that's what an imaginative journalist can come up with if they want to sell newspapers. So there's that. We'll get into some more real science later and leave a little bit of the science friction behind. But uh, Ah, good. Yeah. You know I'm all about the real science. Yeah, baby. Real something science. A, I'm something of a scientist myself. Oh, yes, I know. I know you are. Anyway, so that, should, that wraps up part one. I just found it so interesting that the same family was responsible for, for producing an air of the sky and an air of the sea. So And for inspiring a Hennessy ad. That's like the trifecta of human achievement. Right. <laughs> anyway, um, next up, uh, Jacques Picard and the trip to the bottom of the ocean and uh, all of the interesting stories that'll surround that. 
So did you have anything you wanted to say before we head up to the surface? I don't think so. Okay. Back in the bathosphere, baby. So, Aaron, if you had to fly a giant pill into the stratosphere, what system of propulsion would you use and what would you eat on your journey? Uh, Space gun. And I would eat the dog we brought with. What about you? What system of propulsion would you use and what would you eat on your journey? The power of friendship. (laughs) Aww. (laughs) And I would eat my friends. Very good. (laughs) Because after we get up past gravity, we don't need as much propulsion so that some of the friends can be eaten. Yes. Yes. You're you're dumping ballast, right? It's like it's like how those rocket boosters fall off once the once the rockets through the atmosphere. Yep. Your friends just launch off the sides and fall into the sea. No, no, no. They get they get eaten. Oh, right. Of course. They (laughs) launch off the side and right into your mouth. Very good. Um, oh yeah, there was one other thing I wanted to bring up. Um, I know I mentioned it earlier, but have you ever seen Sydney Lu- or not Sydney Lumet? Oh my God, <laughs> Lumiere's uh, A Trip to the Moon. No, it's a it's a like thirteen minute long movie about a trip to the moon. It came out in nineteen thirteen, I believe, and it was uh, a science fiction story based on a bunch of science fiction stories about a trip to the moon, where people did use a giant space gun uh, built in South America to launch themselves in a bullet all the way out to the moon. Um, the movie itself is amazing, and I just watched it before recording this. And there's, right at the beginning, it establishes that there's all these, like, wise men and, and um, like, thinkers all sitting around. And one of them is in front of a blackboard, and he draws the Earth, and then he draws the moon, and then he draws a line from the Earth to the moon. It's a silent film, so they have to do it all, you know, silently. And all the men sitting there are, like, dressed in wizard robes and wearing pointed caps and things. Illuminati confirmed. Illuminati confirmed. But they all, like, can't figure out how they're going to get there until one of them has the bright idea to take off the hat and turn the coat inside out. And up to that point, they're all wearing wizard robes. They turn the coats inside out. And what are they wearing now? Science. Yep. Lab coats. <laughs> And then they get on the they get on the the space gun and they launch to the moon. They fight aliens and uh, kill presumably the king of the moon. And then they get back in their space bullet and instead of propelling themselves back, they just tip themselves off a cliff and fall back to Earth. And then when they land, <laughs> and then when they land, they are celebrated and they're wearing their white coats and everything. But they erect a statue of a guy in a wizard hat with a wizard robe and that's the end of the movie this says a lot about our society it says a lot about our society i think the funniest part though was them tipping the bullet off the side of a cliff and just simply falling back to earth still that truman show mode of thinking about the moon and the earth relationship very interesting makes sense makes sense And with that, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably right, or a scientist, or a cyan, a wizard. So consider funding the show by becoming a patron on patreon.com. Or if Patreon is not your thing, drop us a little tip in Venmo. That's at WTADP. I would remind everybody um, that as things clamp down in the cyberpunk world we're living in now, support is more important than ever, uh, especially since um, our competitors are quickly becoming the elite again so there you go podcasting was was safe from them for a while but now they're all getting podcasts so support what you like our cover art was created by ian patterson of ian patterson illustration you can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com 
And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sound of the waters above play you out. What, in a few words, is the message you are carrying to the American people, Professor? I will tell what this world looks like from 10 miles off. I will tell about the stratosphere. The stratosphere is a six-hour route between New York and Paris. It will soon be opened to traffic. It may point the way to universal brotherhood and eternal peace. I hope so. Strife is often caused by misunderstanding. Rapid transportation between the two hemispheres will settle minor disputes. I hope a neutral flag will be hoisted in the stratosphere to prevent it ever being used to military purposes. The Intercontinental Highway linking the old and the new worlds holds the promise of mutual goodwill and confidence. When they are only six hours apart, the estranging power of space will be overcome. Europe and America will be next door neighbors. They will drop in on each other and settle their trouble over a cup of tea. <laughs>